Good morning, church. Good morning. So, <clears throat> I was told that even if I bomb, you can't fire me. <laughs> so, that's good news. I appreciate that. Um, I didn't think you were going to get away from, you know, very rarely the uh, 4th of July falls on a Sunday. So, um, you know, we kind of feel compelled to talk a little bit about America today. And, um, you know, I prepared a sermon for you. And, you know, based on the feedback last time, um, it helped, I think, you know, for some folks who like things organized to kind of tell you how, how I'm going to cover this. So, um, you know, as you probably saw in the marquee, it's a kingdom divided is the topic for discussion. And, uh, and I've got three different parts, um, you know, to the, uh, uh, to the sermon. One is an immigrant story. Uh, the warrior ethos, and then finally the provincial messiah. So that's uh, what we're going to talk about. And, um, you know, not only because of the topic, I think, but, you know, just in general, talking, you know, in front of the church uh, gives a little bit of anxiety. Um, you know, there are butterflies and all that kind of stuff, but, um, you know, in James 3.1, it warns that, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So that's pretty heavy if you think about it. And, um, you know, I prayed and uh, prepared, and so hopefully, uh, you know, what uh, what I'm going to say, you know, hits home. And, you know, I ask that, you know, you keep an open mind, you know, and if, uh, if there's anything that you disagree with, come talk to me about it, because, you know, I formulated my thoughts based on, uh, on prayer and, and my own study, but I could be wrong. So, um, you know, in our country we have um, different meanings and, 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 uh, and importances to what uh, our country means to us. And, uh, you know, depending on your, on your personal experience, on your family history, um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I was born in Rome, Italy, um, and uh, I was born there by accident because my parents had already immigrated to the States. Uh, my mom had married my dad, who had been living in Brooklyn, New York, and so she moved to, the, to, the, uh, to Brooklyn to go live with her, with her parents. And so I was supposed to be first generation, but um, the, what happened is they had a, a huge fight, and uh, you know their marriage was in jeopardy. And uh, she went back to Italy to go be with her parents. And, uh, you know, my, my dad, uh, you know, learned that I was, I was born. And uh, he went back to Italy and they reconciled and, you know, and then uh, here I am. So, uh, you know, we've had, you know, we basically have, um, uh, you know, I've gotten a chance uh, through my life to travel a lot. My, uh, my dad worked with the airlines. So back in the golden age of the airlines where travel to employees was free. Um, I got to go and uh, see a lot of things around the world. I got, I got to go back to Europe many times where, uh, you know, it formed a, a pretty strong bond with the old country. Um, you know, I got, to, I got to know my great-grandparents, my grandparents. It was, it was pretty awesome. You know, it was a blessing for me. And, uh, and I even, um, you know, learned the language, you know, where a lot of immigrants lose, you know, lose their language. But, you know, if you hear me, you know, speaking Italian today, you might... You know, and you're from Italy, you might have doubts about whether I can actually speak it well or not, but 
Um, another cool story is that, um, and this kind of you know informs my feeling about my country, uh, is that my grandfather, uh, my mom's side, Vittorio, was a an Italian uh, commander in the Carabinieri, and he was uh, stationed in Albania during World War II. And we you know we all know the history. Uh, the Italians, uh, you know, turned on the Germans. The Germans were smart. They went in and they arrested all the Italians, <laughs> told them, hey, the war is over. And he wound up in a concentration camp in Buchenwald. And he was freed by a U.S. Army unit, um, according to him, uh, by the skin of his teeth. He was, uh, when he went home, he was so skinny that his uh, family didn't, uh, didn't even recognize him. So fast forwarding, when I was 18, uh, still holding a green card, um, you know, I had a choice. You know, Italy had, uh, you know, had a mandatory uh, service that they had, and you know, I've been living in the states my whole life. You know, the, the idea of mandatory service didn't bother me, but you know, I decided that um, I made a choice. I, I said, you know what? I feel like I'm more of an American. Um, I've got, you know, I like the entrepreneurialism. I have, I love the freedom. You know, I kind of have a nose to the grindstone philosophy as an immigrant. You know, to uh, to do that, and uh, you know, we believe that you know that those who who worked hard and you know were able to seize that opportunity, you know, uh, in in general, get blessed here. And then I joined the Marines in 1995, and I embarked on a life-changing journey that uh, you know will uh, forever affect me. And um, I'll describe it a little bit more sooner, but it gave me a great sense of pride, uh, belonging to a brotherhood, um, and uh, and a great deal of confidence. Uh, the warrior in me uh, had been awakened, indoctrinated, and solidified. I was baptized into Christ on, uh, uh, in December of 2004 and experienced a deeper fulfillment, one that challenged my prior beliefs, and that caused me to reflect on the things uh, that I put first in my life. And again, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. So that leads me into the warrior ethos. I think that from this pulpit, especially you know from Andrew and some of his um, his uh, delving into history, uh, we've uh, you know we've heard a consistent message, and some of us you know might get offended sometimes you know because some of those messages might challenge our you know our our, our beliefs and our sensibilities. But despite what we're told by the people in power and sometimes by our own egos, uh, we aren't unique in the grand history of, of the world, either personally or as a political entity. We live in a special nation, no doubt. Uh, as a global hegemon, and uh, for the younger folks, that means the, the, you know, the, 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 the strong economic or political and military power in the world. Um, you know, we're the most influential country and, and, and uh, you know, arguably the most powerful at the moment, but so was Israel in their heyday, so was Egypt, so were the Persians, so were the Ottomans, so were the Romans, right? And each one fell when they became lazy, they became undisciplined, and they became decadent. Each one became divided with factions that formed in their internal ranks. And they turned on each other. And uh, they started looking out for their own interests. 
some of them were made deals with the enemies and in some cases you know allowed them a backdoor entrance into cities and whatnot so that they can conquer and you know with power uh, you know with promises of power and uh, and enriching themselves prior to that each people in these nations felt a great pride and love for their country fought for it died for it and felt a great loss when it was no more as a marine I can tell you with absolute certainty that this love for my country is in my blood and uh, will forever create a struggle in me. I realize that the struggle isn't unique to me though. Um, it's, it's something that every single Christian has to wrestle with, with what they put first in their life. In a review of the book, The Warrior Ethos, um, a fellow leatherneck, his name is Jesse Carr, writes, the Marine Corps exhumes something that is intangible and nearly impossible for one to grasp except through indoctrination. The warrior ethos. The warrior ethos is the foundation of the Marine Corps, taken from the Greek root word ethics. Ethos represents a code of conduct, a guide, or foundation of direction. It's been said that the two oldest professions on the earth are soldiering and prostitution, but I was uh, corrected recently that it's farming, so <laughs> I think that's true. The soldiers always had a place of honor in society, and the reason for that is because you're willing to give up your life and limb in order to save the people you love. You know, you're literally putting yourself in the way of harm and violence to protect people that are, that are behind you. And this lofty idea is as old as the threat of violence itself, but it's also been used and misused by the powerful for all of history. Although the idea of protecting your loved ones is the notion that most soldiers have, in truth, when we're ordered to go do something or to go somewhere for our governments, most of us have very little idea about the true motives behind why we're going. In most cases, we don't have the need to know. That's what security clearance is all about. Why am I telling you this? Let's turn to Ephesians 6, please. Do you like that, Travis? He just mentioned Ephesians 6 to me earlier. I just smiled. That's the Spirit. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, which is the schemes, of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, which is people, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having stood and having shod your feet with the preparation of 
of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints and for me, that the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the gospel, I'm sorry, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. So he makes reference there to being a soldier, definitely. You know, a much different kind of soldier than, than we're used to imagining. And he also calls out the enemy, who the enemy is and who the enemy isn't. He said the enemy isn't people, right? He said the enemy is the dark forces that are in control, the principalities. And what is a principality? What are these principalities that are controlled by Satan? It's called, in the modern context, it's called a country, a nation. Right? Which is scary. Let's turn to um, 1 Samuel, chapter 8. You guys ready to get into some Bible? Okay. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So there we go. We got a godly people that failed leadership, and people started turning to something else, right? Uh, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You're old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. That's a good thought, that my kids are going to be um, targets to protect the guys behind them. Um, He will assign to be commanders of thousands of commanders of 50 and to plow his grounds and to reap his harvests and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, 
and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us, and we will be like the other nations. A king will lead us and will go before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, go back to your own town. We were warned by God himself thousands of years ago that governments would take our kids and our hard-earned wages and use them for their own interests, whether that be noble or ignoble. I, I know that I've mentioned this before and I've, I've made reference to it, but um, I, never, I never really got deeply into it. But um, there's a book that I've read and I've studied it, uh, you know, and it affected me. Um, I studied political science in college, and uh, the the book's called uh, Plato's Republic. And Plato was a student of Socrates. And uh, this republic, this book that he wrote, was a you know whether he was there present and he heard these conversations or not. What happened is he's got he's got Socrates speaking to a bunch of people right that are from the area. And they're, they're imagining what a perfect city would be, what a perfect country would be. And uh, the reason why I bring this up is because, first of all, it's a foundational book of politics. You know, most of the people that rule uh, our country and the world have read it, right? Most of us haven't. You know, unless this is your line of business and you get into it, you're probably not going to read The Republic. But <clears throat> it's got a few concepts in there that I think were interesting. One, uh, ancient Athens was the first and oldest democracy known the history, right? Which makes it significant because we consider ourselves a democracy or form of it, right, as a republic. And then two, we know that Socrates was sentenced to death due to a democratic vote. Uh, they didn't like his ideas, and like we said previously, they, uh, you know, they silence what they don't like, right? And they didn't like what he had to say, and they had a vote in the Senate. They voted 49 to 51, and he had to drink hemlock, and he died. And that's how we lost Socrates. So we have this Plato that, that, that put forth this idea of, of, of a democracy, right? And he had, at the top of the list, there was an enlightened king. That was the best form of government, was an enlightened king. And then you go down the list, and you've got an oligarchy, and you've got different states. And then finally, almost at the bottom of the list, you've got democracy. And then anarchy after that. So from, from, the, from the Greeks' perspective, or from at least Socrates' perspective, democracy in and of itself was almost as crazy an idea as anarchy. Right? It's like you're almost, the, the mob mentality you're subjecting yourself to is crazy. Look what they just did to my teacher. Right? I mean, they, they made him drink poison. So, um, There's also another concept in there, which I think was, was very important, and, and I, when you've seen it repeated through historical literature, and, th and that's called the noble lie. And the noble lie, you kind of have to you know, read through it to, to, really, to really grasp the, the, the full breadth and width of the noble lie, but the noble lie is the idea that, A, people aren't smart enough to know what's good for themselves. So this elite here has to make decisions for you. 
And in order to get you to believe those decisions, they, they're allowed to tell you whatever they think is best for you to believe it. Right? That's called a noble lie. And they have to tie you to the ground that you're standing on. Which means that I have to believe, in order for me to pick up my weapons and go off to war and go kill somebody in another land, I have to believe that, number one, they're less. Right? And number two, that I have more in common with the ground that I'm standing on than I do with that person that I'm about to kill. Right? It's a tall order. And that's not what the Bible says. Right? The Bible says in Genesis that we were created in God's image. All of us. It doesn't mention anything about a nation or the ground you're standing on. But that's what we're told, and it's been used by politicians for centuries to justify using people to do what they want to do. I have um, a letter... I don't know, I have it here in case someone wants to read it afterwards. And I printed it out and I'll give it to you, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it's a letter from John Adams to the Massachusetts militia. And um, it was dated 11 October uh, 1798. And John Adams at this point had a pretty good um, feeling about America. And he felt like they, you know, in general, the folks that, that had established the Constitution had done it to promote freedom, right? They did their best, right? And they kept doing, they tried to keep doing their best. But there's a warning in here as well. And it says, while our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by Providence. So in other words, to enjoy God's blessings. But should the people of America once become capable and moderation, I'm sorry, once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it's practicing iniquity and extravagance, the way I read that is we become hypocrites and don't practice what we preach. And displays its most in the most captivating manner and charming pictures of candor and frankness and sincerity while it's rioting and rapine and insolence, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world. Because we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That goes on, but I think that says a lot. Um, I think... John Adams recognized that the foundation that held together this government, right, which was basically made up of people that have maximized freedom, is their religion and their sense of conscience that guides them, right? He understood that democracy itself could not survive, okay, unless people had strong religious beliefs, unless they, they followed the law of God, right? <clears throat> and the whole, the whole experiment would fail 
if we take our, our eyes off the rock of Jesus. So that leads me to the final, uh, the final section, which is the provincial Messiah. The, the word provincial itself means of or concerning a province or country or empire. Today, the word provincial has a negative connotation in that it's used as small-minded or simple, uh, deriving from the provinces that surrounded a capital city. In other words, it, you are unsophisticated if you lived in the provinces. Um, now the word is commonly used to just mean stupid, right? Simple, dull, you're provincial, right? The opposite of provincial is cosmopolitan, right? And cosmopolitan uh, is made up of two words, right? There's cosmo, cosmos, and then politan, right? Which comes from polis, the city, but it means a citizen. So a citizen of the world, a citizen of the universe, right? That's cosmopolitan. So one, the provincial, is vilified. You're a dummy if you're a provincial. And if you're a citizen of the world, and you embrace the world, you're smart, right? You're, you're smooth. You're a smooth cat. Um, there's, a, there's a sophistication that is ascribed to being cosmopolitan. Folks that get along with everybody, have enough polish not to offend people, are said to be cos cosmopolitans, citizens of the world. Boy, did they try to get Jesus to take political sides. They were just as passionate about their politics then as we are now. In fact, I'd argue that since the Romans were occupying the area, um, and they were occupying Judea, the Zealots were likely even more passionate than we are for good reason. They were willing to die for their cause. And they did. But to their chagrin, Jesus didn't come to resolve their political Issues. In fact, he acted almost as if it was irrelevant. I'm going to read several scriptures in succession. You don't have to necessarily turn there, but I'm trying to paint a picture for you in how Jesus acted around this. So this is mostly from John, the Apostle John. So Jesus establishes his citizenship in John 8:23, But he continued, You are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. So, in terms of being cosmopolitan, <laughs> he just said, no, not. Um, Jesus defined the location of his country. John 18, 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, but if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus establishes the citizenship of his people. John 17:14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of this world any more than I am of the world. Um, John rejects a cosmopolitan viewpoint as a good thing. This is 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Um, you, dear children are from God and have overcome them because you are because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. You know, as Tim was saying earlier, you know, in his lesson earlier this morning, how do we know? How do we know what the spirit of truth is? It's in the Bible, right? We're given that from God. John warns not to love the world. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, uh, love for the Father is not in them. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The irony is that the creator of the world seems to be provincial, not cosmopolitan. Why am I saying this? Is it to get behind American patriotism? Or to, say, or to ask you to reject it? No. Neither. I'm here to preach a message of unity. Not as Americans or citizens of the world, but rather citizens of the kingdom of God. I consider myself a conservative, but not because I agree with every talking point from a political right but rather because I believe that 3,500-year-old Scripture is the guidebook for life given to us by God Himself. And it's full of immutable truths. If you lean left and you believe this too, then I challenge that you're conservative as well. <laughs> um, even though that term might be a dirty word in some circles. Uh, if you're on the right then I challenge you to try to understand your brothers and sisters who may claim to lean left and hear them out. You may be surprised that you have more in common with them than the world wants you to believe. I challenge that all viewpoints that Christians should have should be based in Scripture, not in the morality that political parties establish. Let's turn to Mark 3, 24. This is from Jesus. And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. But hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except... He will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any spirit, if any fellowship of the Spirit, I'm sorry, this is Philippians. I I I, I didn't mark that, so this is uh, this is not in Mark, but this is in Philippians. Uh, therefore, if any uh, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, fulfilling my joy, be like-minded and have the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, and let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. If we listen to each other as Christians, you know, who are imbued with the Holy Spirit, and it dwells in us, you might find that the reason somebody believes maybe views that might seem a little bit different than what you believe are for biblical reasons. You know, if you're on the right and you tend to be uh, a little more patriotic, I tend, you know, you might find that your patriotism borders on idolatry. You might find that. If you're on the left or you lean that way, you might find that your morality has been compromised by some of your positions. Right? And I think it's important that we talk. In Amos 3.3, it says, Can two walk together unless they're agreed? So don't be afraid to talk with your brother and sister about issues. You know, I see too many people that are afraid of talking to each other because it's become taboo. Right? Let's not talk about that. Right? And then divide gets further and further. You know, when you're in a marriage and you don't talk with your wife or husband, what happens? You grow further apart. Right? When you guys talk, all of a sudden you work out your issues and you become closer. You, you reach an understanding. Well, the same thing happens in our church, in the kingdom of God. Right? We're not going to get anywhere unless we talk to each other. Wrestle through it together, respectfully, using the scripture to level set. And that takes effort. But only then can both learn and grow together and become closer and agree to walk together. If you don't do this, you will find yourself avoiding each other. Don't let the world educate you right or left and cause division in the kingdom of God. Let us be educated by the fellowship of the Spirit and defy the world, and in so doing, we'll glorify God by loving one another more deeply. In closing, I'd ask that we turn to 1 Peter, um, Chapter 1, 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here, your life, in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and a spot without stain. He intended, I'm sorry, he indeed was for ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you, who through him believe, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope in God. You have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love for one another. I'm sorry, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, 
which lives and abides forever. Thank you.